Sam, what's your favorite John Carpenter movie? My favorite John Carpenter movie. This this is really difficult because I think so John Carpenter, my dad made me watch John Carpenter movies when I was a kid. And so I feel like different phases of my life I would have a different answer for this question. And part of me feels like honor bound to say the thing. But I kind of feel like the answer might actually be Big Trouble in Little China. Wow. Yeah, that's one that I didn't like when I was a kid for some reason. I just, I thought it was too corny. You're too corny. I also watched it before I had a taste for John Carpenter. And it was just this like stupid movie where like the hero gets fucking lipstick all over his face in the end. And it's just like, this is stupid. It's more atypical than every other John Carpenter. It stands out. Every single time I've watched it since, I've liked it more and more and more. And I could imagine that being my answer a couple more watches from now. Because it keeps shooting up. It's so fun, too. It's it's one of those movies, it's like an antidote for a bad day. Like yeah. You have a shitty yeah. day, That's you put totally it on, it. and it makes you smile. Oh. And it shows, that lipstick thing shows how fucking cool and confident Kurt Russell is. That he can have the final fight in the movie looking like a doofus. And, and with lipstick, can you see like Stallone or Schwarzenegger no. like putting not lipstick on in the 80s? Years. No, no, but he was, he was okay with, and not just that scene, but the whole movie of having people laugh at him. Well, you know? and that was something that my dad pointed out to me maybe the first time I watched it was, here's this movie where if you follow the sort of typical rules of American action adventure movies... It's always the big, tough white guy who's the hero. But really, the person who does all of the actual fighting in the movie is his tiny little Chinese sidekick who's not actually his sidekick. He's like the one doing all the shit. He's really the sidekick. It's it's magical. But also, it's like now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, oh, do I say Escape from New York? Do I say... I have to stop thinking. All right, you guys want to start the show? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerd, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And we are here to talk about Assault on Precinct 13, which... I think we can all agree is John's favorite John Carpenter movie. Yes, it is. I have um, what I consider the gold tier of Carpenter's career, where it's, it's Assault and Present 13, Halloween, and The Thing. Yeah. There's like Silver, which is like Escape from New York. Whoa. I love Escape from New York, but it's it, I don't think it's as good as those three. It's great. It's fantastic. It's better than most movies ever made. But and then he got like the bronze, which is like They Live, which is also a movie I love. I would agree that They Live is in bronze. I love The Fog, but yeah, it's a bronze movie. I feel like what? The Fog is silver. But br- I love Keep the in mind, fog. bronze, John Carpenter, John Carpenter bronze is still higher than Fair. most people's gold. I'm really particular to Prince of Darkness. I know a lot of people it's don't like it. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's fantastic. It's in my top five. Prince yeah, of Darkness fantastic. has an incredible opening act, and then it's just people walking around with like occasional cuts to some green liquid. No. no. Okay. Alice Cooper is the only thing that really. <gasps> Alice Cooper does rule. Dare on the movie. you? He does, but 
It's so much more than that. It's a fucking hangout movie with suspense. It's, you know I love a good hangout and, movie. And science versus supernatural. It's but also really a well siege delivered. movie, yeah, kind of. Yeah. The way Assault on Precinct 13 is. Okay, so for Assault on Precinct 13, I got a little uh, plot synopsis here I'd like to read off. When the LAPD kills several members of the South Central gang Street Thunder, the remaining members avenge themselves by way of a bloody war waged against cops and citizens alike. Caught in the crossfires, Lieutenant Ethan Bishop, who's managing a skeleton crew at the local and soon-to-be-closed police precinct. As the gang members close in, Bishop forms an unlikely alliance with a group of prisoners in order to, to defend the station and the lives of everyone in it. I love that this movie is just fucking Night of the Living Dead in a police station. And definitely also Rio Bravo. Oh, for sure, for sure. It, it feels like a Western. Most people, like if it you does. ever see people uh, explain it, that's the two that oh, they always go to. Night of the Living Dead and Rio Bravo. Speaking of that Night of the Living Dead nod, I love the way the movie never really tries to develop any of the gang as characters they're like zombies in the way that they're just this sort of single-minded focus yeah with no real like human qualities or like we never get to know them there's yeah. there's no like subplots about how we should feel sorry for them they're just scary yeah so it opens with the gang basically getting decimated by a bunch of fucking pigs with shotguns down a hallway and so the remaining members of Street Thunder have this, like, blood ritual where they all slice their hands into this, like, bucket. Well, what's really neat about that is they don't tell us much about them. So in my headcanon, they're four leaders of different gangs. That's sort of what I assume. Yeah, bonding together. And now that's why there's so many of them because they're like, fuck it. We're all teaming up and we're going to take over the city. And that was something that a lot of, like, liberals and, like, right-wingers were terrified of in the 70s was unity between like the Panthers and the Latin Kings and all of these other like insurrectionist leftists coming together to fuck up the liberal order of the day. Right. And this, they're all kind of like coming together with a single-minded focus of revenge against their fallen comrades. It's great because in so many movies that feature gangs, whether they're cult movies or mainstream movies, you always have these fucking subplots about how there's this sort of like Machiavellian backstabbing and all the different like leaders and lieutenants are jockeying for positions of power. You see it in mob movies and all different kinds of organized crime movies. And there's none of that here. They're just united. Like, you don't see that very often in these types of movies. It's great. But despite the fact that uh, I love to side with uh, cop killers of all stripes, personally, what this film does to kind of... Uh, change the tone. Change the tone. <laughs> and to taper that feeling that I have deep in my heart is that wonderful scene that's probably... I, I don't know if this would be the most iconic scene of the film. It's definitely the scene of the film that... Most talked about. For sure. It's insane. So this guy that looks just like fucking James Woods, or like an old James Woods who's like a little bit less hateful, is like riding <laughs> is riding around town with his daughter. And you can tell that like there's some kind of like sketchy money stuff going on or something. Like He keeps like looking at a bag in the car. They like, don't give you 
the real backstory, but like it's they're going to pick up somebody because they don't like her living in this quote unquote awful neighborhood. That's right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is great about this is there's so little exposition. You're just like launched into the story. Well, the one thing that always like makes me think that there's something else going on with them is that they're lost when they're driving around and a cop drives by. And the daughter, in like a playful bit of banter with her dad, is like, oh, ask the policeman. And he just kind of just looks back at the road and says, we're not doing that, honey. It is that street. I can never seem to find that street. Why don't we ask them? Uh, Bonaire Place. I think it's down here just a couple of blocks more. Mr. Stewart says the policeman's always there to answer questions and to help you when you're in trouble. Obviously, Mrs. Seward has never taken any big steps outside of the sixth grade. Huh? I'm not in any trouble, honey. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, maybe you're hiding something. Like, that's like a tell in a movie that someone is... Oh, totally. Right. Especially westerns and, like, old film noir movies is people avoid... People shown in the early frames in the movie or early scenes to be avoiding the cops are they're always hiding something well it also shows and goes back to why this movie feels like western this part of la that the movie takes place in is a no man's land like there's scenes where they're walking around and all you see is no people and shitty broken down buildings yes and i feel like it's building up the fact that like this place is so bad this guy doesn't even trust the authority figures of this area he just wants to get in and get out wow you have such a different read on movies I mean, than I've, I do. I've also seen yeah. this movie like a thousand yeah, times. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean that it's a slight it, at all. It's, it's well, Also, and one of the reasons to go back, like how we don't get much exposition about these things, which is what I like. I like movies where my imagination is in play, where I'm like, yes. I don't really, I never got this story. So I get to build my own character motivations. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't and like feel that. like a plot hole. No, no. It's you're taking off in the middle of a story that's already happening. And that's what I hate about so many mainstream movies is exactly what John just said. I don't want to be spoon fed everything that I'm supposed to be thinking or everything that I'm supposed to be feeling about a particular scene is, I want that room for uncertainty and ambiguity. And you get so much of that in this film. Yeah. All right. Back to the iconic Absolutely. moment. So dad pulls over the car because I guess they're a little bit lost and he has to call the person they're going to pick up and he stops at a payphone, and little girl hears the ice cream truck and Boy, oh boy, does she want a vanilla twist. Don't we all? She runs up to Mr. Ice Cream Man, but Mr. Ice Cream Man is sitting in his truck, and he is sweating bullets because this car keeps driving up and down the street. And a scene earlier was, like, five members of the Street Thunder who are just this, like, diverse crowd of gang members. Like, there's, like, a black dude, a Spanish-looking dude who has, like, a Che Guevara star hat. It's great. And, like, that skinny white guy who's in Escape from New York. Yes, he plays Romero in Escape from New York. The guy with the weird hair that does the weird (sighs) hiss. He's he's one of my favorite characters in that movie. He's He's a wild-looking dude. Yeah, great character actor. But they're they're sitting in their their Street Thunder whip, their car they're riding around in, and they're just silently loading their weapons for like a minute straight. Like it's this long scene of them loading weapons. And usually in these kinds of movies, you have a bunch of sexy cuts to like 
the you know the ch- the bullet going in the chamber it's sliding up all these sounds but this is just this like slow single wide ass take that just lets everything play out and that's why Carpenter's so fucking cool he takes his time with that kind of stuff a lot of people like to get flashy as you were saying but yeah he has this kind of like mid-paced workman like attitude like he know he has he's confident he knows this is the story and I'm going to give it to you. And he doesn't feel like he needs to add all this flash and pizzazz to get you interested. He's just got, like, yeah, absolute confidence. For sure. It's gonna, it's gonna and the fact that, like, this is his first real film. I mean, Dark Star is a movie. Yeah, well, you know. well Dark Star was a student film yeah. that got picked up by, uh, was it John Harris, the guy who produced The Blob? He added more money so they can make a real movie. But also... This is his first real movie where it's like he's it's clearly all of his. Yeah. He made Dark Star with Dan O'Bannon. And Dan O'Bannon, if you know Dan O'Bannon, you can see his fingerprints all over Dark Star. This movie is. Yeah, no Dan O'Bannon fingerprints here. No, No. absolutely not. (laughs) Although speaking of Dan O'Bannon and not to take us away from the iconic scene that you keep trying to get to. I can't even talk about it. But I mean, Things like Alien and Return of the Living Dead also have that sort of people trapped in a location, pressure cooker kind of vibe that's going on here, which is one of my favorite plot devices. You know, a sad thing about Dan O'Ban is he just got fucked his whole career. He got fucked by Carpenter. Yeah, he wanted to get co-director credit on Dark Star. Because they directed it together. Yeah, uh, Alien, he had to fight for his writing credit. He had to literally sue. Which sucks. Return of the Living Dead, he got fired, so that final cut of the movie is not his. You know, he just all and and he was going to make Dune with Odorowski, and that fell apart. Like his whole career, he really got dicked around. Well, at least we got a uh, what's that movie? Buried. Uh, oh, buried alive. Buried alive. I thought it was wait, which one? Burial no. ground. No, the res the resurrection. The, the, the uh, Lovecraft oh my God. he did with Chris Sarandon. I think it's The Resurrection. Yeah. No, I'm talking about much. the fucking the awesome movie that's like a Twilight Zone episode. Oh, yeah. Dead and Buried. Dead, dead and Buried. buried. Well, he, I was like, I know well, Buried. Well, yeah, but that that's not his project. That was one, um, the script was already out and he rewrote it. It's amazing. It's a great movie. Okay. Vanilla Twist. Back the to ice Vanilla cream Twist. Yes, go, go on. So the car circling the block. Ice cream truck guy's like, ah, sorry, I'm closed, kid. And like, she's like, your music's still on. And she makes sad, wholesome little girl face. Yeah, and she looks like, like All right. she looks like the kid in the Brady Bunch, the little kid, you know, pigtails. Yeah, and so you already kind of like this kid because she's not just like a whiny brat. She's like kind of a spunky. She's a real housewife now. I forget which one, a real housewife of California or L.A. The or little kid. Kim Richards. She was in. <laughs> what the fuck? She, yeah, I, I, it, she might not be anymore, but five or ten years ago, she was one of the Real Housewives of dot dot dot. You're like the Rain Man of John Carpenter movies, <laughs> <laughs> especially this one. <laughs> so he finally sells her the ice cream that she asked for, and she walks back, and she realizes it's not the ice cream she asked for. She wanted vanilla twist. She's just got straight vanilla. This is regular vanilla. I demand a refund. And as she's walking back to the ice cream truck, the ice cream truck driver's already fucking throat deep down this long-ass pistol that one of the Street Thunder gang members has shoved in his mouth. And as soon as the kid walks up to the ice cream truck, bam, she's just shot right in the chest, fucking blood all over her dress. Ice cream. All over ice cream. And it's, it's one of those things where usually... 
when you're watching a movie, and I know a lot of horror fans, like, for some reason love when they show kid death in movies, because it's kind of a taboo, rarely right. seen things. And a lot of times movies will, like, kind of set you up, like, ooh, is this kid going to get killed by the killer? Like, they kind of build it up. Whereas this... And it almost never happens. Not in American movies. Yeah, it's rare. It's very rare. And this is just so shocking at how fast it happens. Matter and how, of fact. Just like, matter of fact. The guy doesn't even fucking look at her or blink after he does it. It's like nothing at all. Because they are on a mission of death. It goes back to it being a Western. It's just like the beginning of... Uh, or not the very beginning, but of Once Upon a Time in the West... When when Harry Fonda's, you know, when the guy's like, Frank, what are we going to do about this kid? And Harry Fonda's just like, on account of you just saying my name, and he pulls out the gun. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's so fucking cool and so cold-blooded. But it, so it's also like, now we know who these guys are, how far they're willing to go. Yes. You know, they're evil. They're evil people. And he accomplishes all that without any dialogue and any exposition. Yeah. It's a truly magical opening. It's like a perfect opening. And one of the other main characters that gets set up, I think, shortly before this scene or shortly after the scene. Well, that's what's neat is that like it has this almost montage like feel where you're like, okay, here's Lieutenant Bishop, here's Napoleon Wilson, here's the gang. Yeah. Like everything's really just perfectly getting set up. Totally. This does great work at table setting for sure. Absolutely. And I know I mentioned how much I love cops earlier in the episode. <laughs> the way they do the main cop character to like make him a little more likable and like not feel like a cop is they give him a set of morals and ethics and like relatively PG banter the whole time. He has a sense of humor, which the he's also a black guy and he's contrasted with these white cops who don't give a shit. They just want their shift to be over so that they can close the station and it's not their problem anymore. And they clearly couldn't care less about what's happening. And it feels like he's the only person who cares. Also, before you even get to those guys, the cops that killed the Street Thunder gang, you don't even see them. No. You just see hands holding guns. Yes. Uh, his boss is just a voice on the radio giving him orders. And then the the person holding Napoleon Wilson in prison, he beats them. Yeah, you a know, clear he, scumbag. Yeah. And Charles Cyphers, who f- has more character, still is, you know, kind of by the book and rigid. So, yeah, uh, Lieutenant Bishop definitely has much more humanity. And it's it's playing on Western mythology. It's playing on that old sure. classic sheriff who believes in right yeah. and wrong Absolutely. justice. And I think that is why it's easier for me to swallow because sometimes when I'm watching movies and a cop is the lead and you have to like like them and sympathize with them, it's an instant turnoff for me, you know? I mean, no offense to anyone listening whose uncle is a cop. I'm sure they're a real piece of shit. You don't think there are a lot of <laughs> cops listening to our show? But I mean, <laughs> this one makes it so much easier for me to like feel for this guy because he He's trying to do the right thing. Yeah, and he doesn't seem like a like a cop. Or like he doesn't seem like a fucking dickhead. He doesn't seem like he always is trying to prove his masculinity. But it also does the thing that we'll later see in John Woo's The Killer or Michael Mann's Heat, where this cop 
actually identifies more with this criminal because so good they both have these ethics and it doesn't matter what side of the law you're on you do these things because they're right and they're honorable which is totally a western thing yes totally but yeah i i think that is something that makes this feel so different from what you're talking about a lot of those 80s movies where there are cops as protagonists who we're supposed to like like even even somebody like Cobra, a movie that I love, this feels so different because something that happens in pop culture, certainly in the media, is there's this cop mentality that it's sort of you're a cop or you're a criminal and there's no gray area and it's almost this like refusal to recognize that people are human. Wasn't it James Cameron, he wanted the T-1000 to be a cop because they they have that like... I'm above you bully mentality and therefore the T-1000 would naturally be scarier. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I remember reading that. It's so different from that here though because he's, I think, one of the few cop characters that we see at least in American movies of the 80s or 90s who immediately meets these criminals, especially Napoleon and gives him a chance to define himself he doesn't immediately put him in this box of oh you're in prison you must be evil or beneath me or not worthy of humanity and respect it's like he respects him pretty much right out of the gate well when they meet the whole time the whole movie napoleon wilson's asking people for a cigarette and everybody gives him like a cocky reason like we're not gonna give you a smoke this is napoleon wilson Got a smoke? Close the door. I want you to know something, Wilson. Now, I don't enjoy driving anybody to death row. You try anything. Anything. I've got two guards with shotguns, and I'll blow you apart. Sure could use a smoke. Do you understand me, Wilson? You mumble a little bit. I get the general idea. Let's go. Napoleon Wilson asks Bishop for a cigarette and he just politely answers like, no, I don't smoke or no, I don't have one. And that's it. He doesn't treat him like he's below him or anything. He just. Yeah. And that kind of sets off, at least in my head, that Napoleon Wilson's like, okay, at least this guy's treating me like a human. Got a smoke? Nope. Sorry. Well, uh, you see one floating around. Snag it for me, will you? So Napoleon Wilson is the is the other side of the coin in this movie. He is the the proto Snake Plissken. Absolutely. Yeah, you see so much of it, and it would be I think it would be really interesting to see Kurt Russell in this role, even though uh, what's his name, Darwin jo- Johnston. Darwin Johnston. He's great, but Darwin the Rock Johnston. <laughs> <laughs> He's great in it. He's Definitely not as... He doesn't have as much swagger as Kurt Russell. Yeah, and he's not as masculine either, which is kind of one of the reasons I like about him. He feels more like a regular guy. Yeah. Yeah. But you're introduced to him, and he's like one of those kind of guys who... This is a great trope. I love this in Westerns, and I love this in also like Zatoichi movies and shit, where it's a character who the audience has just met, but every single person in the universe of the film knows exactly who he is. Yeah. It's, you did what to John Wick's dog? You know, like, right. it's, 
it's someone who is so fucking cool in this universe and it's like your job as the audience to figure out why and you find out pretty quickly what it is that this fucking guy is all about and he's just so fucking cool yeah he has that great conversation with charles cyphers where charles cyphers is like why'd you kill all those men you're not you're not stupid you're not a psycho you never find out why but it's just like oh wow this guy's done some shit but for some reason everybody's kind of enamored not what's a word for enamored they're by fascinated by yeah, him fascinated. they're absolutely fascinated he's by infamous. him everyone wants to talk to him and figure out and you can tell from his actions in the movie that he clearly didn't murder people out of like some malice or or madness he or had anything. a reason yeah which, which is definitely some western shit right yeah and what's amazing is that they don't like that none of that is ever explained but you know it yes you yes. know it what do you want why, do I have to want something? You're a cop. You're either curious about me, or you want to give me some shit. I don't understand you, Wilson. Curious. You're not a... You're not a psychopath. You're not stupid. I am an asshole. Can't take everything away from me. Why did you kill those men? Everybody asked me the same question. I always tell them the same thing. First time I ever saw a preacher, he said to me, son, there's something strange about you. You got something to do with death. Being real young, I believed him. Turned out he was right. That's no answer. I thought it was pretty good. Where'd you get a name like Napoleon? I'll tell you sometime. When? Moment of dying. <laughs> I'm gonna do my best to be there when your time comes. <sighs> Such a cool fucking movie. I love this movie. I do too. I also really love this like translation of Western tropes to this modern day urban setting because it does this really interesting thing. And I think a lot of, definitely a lot of Western movies are all about anxieties about masculinity and traditional masculinity and how that's changing in the modern world and like american westerns are all about this sort of like fear of american values changing and i think you see some of that show up here in a way that's really refreshing because it's not just a bunch of old white guys swinging their dicks around. It's this much more diverse cast, which is not something I think you see a lot in this particular time period. But it's not like if somebody made the movie now. And I feel like there's definitely been this push to diversify movies in a way that's really positive. But sometimes it feels forced, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And here it feels... Like, I can't imagine the story with different characters. Yeah, no, not at all. When they did the remake, which I saw when it came out, uh, flips the, like, black and white dichotomy of the criminal and... But it also flips something else that's kind of interesting, is that it's not a street gang anymore going after... It's, it's a gang of dirty cops. Even though the movie's not that good, it still was, like, I guess kind of ahead in a, in a certain way. Yeah, it's it's kind of 
okay. It's one of the like during that time period, there was just shitty fucking remakes coming out yeah, every that single was it. week. It was like from like 2004 to like 2012 was like the remake. It was awful. I mean, we're still fucking living in it. I was for gonna sure. say to 2012 it's, or to now. Yeah, but it was like oversaturated. I think. Then. I think yeah. now we've just. It's less that it's oversaturated now than it is that we are just numb to it. You know, when yeah, you when I can't you even hear, get angry anymore. We're no, we're we seem to be in the term of, time of the soft reboot as opposed to like yeah, that's true. I am actually not against the the idea of remakes. Some of them are great. David Cronenberg's The Fly, The Thing. Speaking the thing. of John Carpenter, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Did you hear Eli Roth is doing the Beyond? Shut the fuck up. That's not true. Get take that. The I'm fuck kicking back. you yeah, off this podcast. That's not real. Get out that's of my not house. Real. Yeah, I just made that up. Okay. Thank God. God. <laughs> Don't Jesus do that. You know we're gross. gullible. I'm sorry, you guys. <sighs> but anyway, my problem with the remakes back then, it wasn't the fact that these movies were being remade. It was the fact that you were taking classic, nasty exploitation movies and remaking them by big budget studios for milk toast vanilla audiences. Yeah, just, it, just stripping them of their claws and teeth. It, it was like, oh, here's the Avril Lavigne Napalm Death cover album. You know, <laughs> it, you know, it was just did not work. However, if you had like a talented new director who was like, I'm going to remake Phantasm, I would love to see that. I, and like, I'll always have the original Phantasm, but I would like to see this unique vision of it. But that's not what happened. It was just these by the book cookie cutter remakes where yeah you took totally neutered yeah. you took texas chainsaw massacre to the vet declawed oh neutered and ugh. but at the same time if jim van bever remade texas chainsaw massacre i yeah yeah it would have been yeah. sick <laughs> i and and you know what even if it wasn't who cares i still have the, that's still how i feel about remakes i still have the originals yeah. I, I mean i think that's that's where we have definitely grown up in our thinking is that at the time when sacred crowds yes yeah when dawn of the dead was being remade it felt bad. Like a betrayal. But, but it was bad. But the thing is... <laughs> it's Zack Snyder. Right. It's but bad. Zack Snyder's an auteur. Shut the fuck up. Well, you're really on one right now. <laughs> but but also, if Dawn of the Dead was remade by somebody who would have an interesting version of it, I'd be down to watch it. You know what? Can we get back to the subject oh, no, at no, hand no, uh, here? Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. I where, but, uh, but no, we were talking about the assault remake which was not as egregious as the fog remake do you remember the fog remake oh my god do you remember the thing remake which was like all of john carpenter's movies have been remade yeah yeah Wait, there's a no, fog no. remake? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know what? It's a I don't, fucking don't tell me. It's like it's it's PG thirteen. <laughs> oh my god. And it was at that beautiful time in the mid two thousands when CGI was just Popping perfect. off. It was yeah. perfect to yeah. look at. Was, Everyone was just What was the mummy movie where 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 the rock comes out, Scorpion King? It's the war CGI. Instead of doing some kind of like quick camera editing, they just do a CGI version of The Rock. Which also, can we get back to Assault on Sorry, Precinct 13? Sorry. I'm yeah, getting yeah, upset yeah, talking about it's remakes. It's fine, but we, we I were hate going remakes. to a we Yes, had we're some done. Good dialogue for sure, for sure, for sure. Let's get back to the topic on hand, which is, did you know that The Rock was scheduled to play Snake Plissken in the Escape from New York remake. What? This was no, like yes, was, no, 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 This was like no, ten no. years ago. No, this was like no, ten years wrong. ago. It was Big Trouble in Little China that he wanted to do. It wow. was Gerard Butler that was going to play. And, <laughs> and um, we live in hell. And <laughs> we and live in hell. Kurt Russell was on. Who was the Scottish guy who had a talk show? Craig uh, Ferguson. Craig Ferguson. He was he was uh, doing Death Proof. 
and he was just like Craig Ferguson was like, yeah, I heard Gerard Butler is going to play Snake Plissken. Carlos is like, yeah, and 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 Craig Ferguson's like, that's a load of shit. <laughs> <laughs> And Kurt Russell was like, actually, he's like, he didn't want to like. He's a nice guy. Exactly. But yeah. he was like, my thing is that Snake Plissken is an American. He's a jaded American. And that's why it didn't sit right with him, which is, you know. That's a very diplomatic way to say this idea sucks. But it's also true. J- Snake Plissken is like a war hero that got pissed on. And so it, you can only which have an American. Which is a huge part of the subtext of that movie. Right. Yeah, 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 you got to get yeah. a flu shot, I think. What do you, you don't believe in modern medicine? You believe in... I'm just afraid of needles like everybody You're else. You're afraid of needles? Well, enough so that... Yeah, I yeah, that's well, fair enough. But I'm going to I'm I'm pull through. Dude, you're Snake Plissken. You can't be afraid of needles. That's crazy. Snake Plissken didn't like needles. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Like needles. But he said it quietly like, yeah, yeah. like needles. <laughs> okay, it's official now. We're getting back on topic. Okay, sorry. Napoleon. Napoleon, Napoleon Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. And I love, I don't know why, but there's the scene in the police van when the van has picked up all the prisoners and they're moving them to like a maximum security lockup. Well, they're on death row. They're all on death row. And there's one guy in the police van who's just like coughing. He's like hacking up a lung the whole time. Just say your favorite line. I know that's what you're building up to. I quote, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't even know why I quote this line all the time, but I always have. I thought the warden said it was only a cold. The man is sick. The man is sick. That's Tony Burton, who, um, he's Apollo's trainer in the Rocky movies. Yeah, Which I think he did the same, the same year. I think Rocky was the same year as this. I think it was. Also, the first time I saw that movie, I didn't really have a whole lot of context for what it was because I had seen other John Carpenter movies first. And so I was a little bit later to this one. I want to say I saw it when I was like 18 or 19. And because that guy in the bus is so sick, I thought this was going to be a zombie movie that like that guy was going to infect people. Yeah, because it's clearly setting up as if this is going to be something that changes the plot. Yeah. Which it does. But not in the way I was as a horror fan. I was expecting. So the sick man forces them to change their route a little bit and they stop over at Precinct 13, which is soon to be shut down. Which is really precinct, precinct 14, yeah. if, you, if you read the sign. I love that. So I never noticed that until you pointed it out last time that all over the walls in this police station, it just says Precinct 14. Now you wow. can't unsee it, but I, Precinct 13 is just a cooler. Yeah, right. Assault on Precinct 14 sucks. Doesn't have that. That's, that's the PG remake. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they get diverted back to this police station, which is shutting down. All the while, Street Thunder is on the prowl outside with their fucking blood wish vendetta. Preparing for war. They're preparing for war against anyone in their path. Well, they already shot the little girl, and the dad is now chasing them, and then they have a minor shootout, which he kills the Frank Doubleday character, and now he realizes what he's done, and he's on the run, and he... Yes. Of course, and right as this is happening, he runs into all of the these plots kind of converge exactly at this moment. And I kind of love the idea that nobody knows that backstory behind this man. He just goes in this catatonic state, but all they know is this guy is in danger. He came here for help, 
and in that classic Western style, they're like, well, obviously we're going to help him. There are some characters throughout who kind of like are saying he's the one they want. That's, oh yeah, yeah. The and Nancy that's, Loomis character. Yeah, that's also to which I really can't believe that's her real name. Nancy Loomis. Yeah, it's so good, but that's one of the things that I love so much about this is the way that it uses some of those Western tropes and even I want to say a lot of kind of prison exploitation films. It's there's this sort of scapegoat character. Like I was rewatching female convict scorpion yesterday for the millionth time and it's the same sort of thing where there's a scene where all of these female convicts are like oh they want her give her to the cops and we'll be safe and it's the same sort of thing that happens here where that's the way that you can tell who's really a coward yes and who has no morals it's it's like a clear dividing line and that's just like great storytelling it's a great it way to sh- show you who these characters are you without know without a shitload of dialogue yeah, and exposition he's the one they want why don't we give him to them well don't give me that civilized look this is my station tonight he came in here for help he's going to get all the help we can give him no <laughs> Can I interrupt to talk about one of my favorite characters? Sure. So Lee, who I don't know what her, um, you might know this. So there are two women at the station when the movie starts. And I don't think we're told what either of their jobs are. They're clearly not cops. I don't know if they're supposed to be I think secretaries in the, in the or... beginning, Nancy Loomis is the one that's like on the phone. So I imagine she's like a dispatcher. Yes. I okay. don't know what, uh, I don't Lee know does. what, what Lee does either, but she is just the best fucking character. And the way that you were kind of saying that Napoleon feels like a dry run for snake Pliskin. There's a lot about Lee's character that I kind of wish had carried over into big trouble in little China. She's played by Laurie Zimmer, who I, she's so hot. Not to like drag down the level of our conversation here, but she's. She's so hot. And there are so many times where she's having a conversation with people and it almost seems like she's flirting. And I realized that like, oh no, I just think she's really hot. I think she might be though. Like she makes eyes at people and she's sort of direct in a way that women usually are not. In yeah. films, I think she's just so cool that it feels yeah. like it, like she's. Yeah. So it's hard cool. to tell, yeah. which right. is great. But it's also that thing where somebody's so cool and confident that they feel like it's like, oh wow, this person's kind of like likes me, even though they're just cool and confident because they, don't... they have so much charisma right. and because like we keep saying she's super hot. But... I love the scene with with her and the cop. Yeah, their first little dialogue together. Hello, Lieutenant. Hi, I'm Lee. Ethan Bishop. Things are quiet. For a change. You took over at the right time. Apparently. When are you moving? They shut off the phones and the electricity at 10 tomorrow morning. That sounds pretty final. Would you like some coffee, Lieutenant? Uh, yes, thank you. Just made some fresh. I'll get you a cup. Thanks. Black? For over 30 years. I'm sorry. 
two sugars. Yeah, she. So there's, I feel like there's this sort of like slight undercurrent of racism when he first shows up to the station where the older white cops are a little bit like who's this black out of towner that we don't know who's coming into our station he's just going to be here overnight we don't we're going to be sort of cordial because he's another cop but they make it I feel like Carpenter makes it clear in these really small gestures that they don't respect him but she does immediately and they develop this really great rapport where she almost has sort of like shades of the little girl. She's not obnoxious. She doesn't spend half the movie crying the way the Nancy Loomis character does for a minute. She just, she has like a a degree of like agency and pushback and she winds up becoming a fucking badass. The moment She's that so awesome. fully solidifies her badassery is later when the siege is popping off and she's like down the hallway and she's getting the prisoners out of their cell and one of the guys like one of the street thunder members comes down the hallway and pops a shot off on her and it hits her in the arm and she doesn't even fucking blink also that scene has always really struck me when she just unquestioningly goes in and sets those two prisoners free because I feel like there are all of these scenes and tropes that you see, especially in Hollywood movies, with professional women and male prisoners where there's this implication that if you acknowledge the prisoners or interact with them anyway, all they want to do is rape you because they're prisoners. And I think it's another way that pop culture and media demonizes Absolutely. people in prison is to make it seem like they're all sex offenders just waiting for the opportunity, which is just patently not true. And the fact that she never has that moment where it's like, should I set them free? I'm scared for my safety. Like, what will they do to me? She just knows it's the right thing to do. So she goes in and sets them free. It's It says so much about her character yeah. like that and her getting shot and not reacting. It's, She's just cool. I think that's one thing that Carpenter really excels at doing. Yeah, he's got great female characters. Great female characters and just characters who you fucking love who you can just immediately like if not identify with just respect respect and think are cool there's a great quote somebody asked john carpenter why he uses archetypes so much he said it's just like when you watch a movie and john wayne shows up you don't need to explain his backstory everything you need to know is right there immediately yes and he he likes playing with that he just gives you just this minimal amount of information picks the right actor and you got it you know exactly who you're watching and when so when street thunder starts fucking sieging the building and the the prisoners are out and there's bullets flying everywhere inside i mean they're not in the building quite yet but they're but like they're breaking they're in. breaking through yeah. the fucking windows and and Napoleon Wilson's holding the door shut and he's just shouting. I love this part. Give me a gun! They're coming down the hall! I can't hold it! Shit! (laughs) 
And then you you see Lieutenant Bishop, and he's still holding his pose. Right. I love like, that part. It's he's like, so oh, great. What's going to happen next now that I just gave Napoleon Wilson a shotgun? It's perfect. And one of the things that I love, like, I think the unifying factor in all of my favorite Carpenter movies, whether it's Prince of Darkness or The Thing or The Fog... He is so great at building this sense of suspense where you find yourself holding your breath and you're not sure what's going to happen next. And there's so much of that here. I think this is going to lead me to my my main criticism of Carpenter, which is something that would, in any other director, almost be a deal breaker, would be something that is just so utterly frustrating that I cannot even enjoy the film. But with Carpenter, this area that I think he doesn't excel in doesn't bother me. I don't think John Carpenter is a good action director. I think that some of the action scenes, especially in Escape from New York, like the fight scene in the ring, even the chase scene in the end, the only reason why you are invested in those scenes and you're down is because he's good at suspense and he's good at characters, but the action is never particularly thrilling. To go back to what I said, where he doesn't add that flash. There's such a like cool casualness to it. Well, yeah, it would be cool if that fight scene had, you know, was like a Shaw Brothers movie where you really watched Snake Plissken and that guy brawl in that ring, and it's really fucking cool. But for some reason, the fact that it's just so matter-of-fact kind of gives it... A definitely different flavor. Exactly. I think the reason that the fights... I I think out of any of his films, the best fight scenes might be in Big Trouble in Little China because they're not supposed to be cool fight scenes. They're supposed to be funny. Yes. And they are very funny. And it's sort of interesting to think that somebody who's made their career as like definitely a horror director, but also kind of an action director is just really not invested in shooting actual action sequences. I I think that he shoots action like Roberta Finlay shoots sex. That's a little, (laughs) little far. I think you're, you're at least in the right ballpark, though. He's not really interested in thrilling his audience with this big chase spectacle. Because he's making westerns, and yeah. westerns have sometimes scenes where people punch each other, but for the most part, the big showdown in a western is it's two dudes at opposite ends of the street with pistols walking towards each other slowly. Yes. It's a very different kind of confrontation where it's so much more psychological than it is physical. Especially since you know, like, or you don't know the backstory of those, but you know who these characters are. And the fact that they are about to collide is sort of what makes it's like the end of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where it's just three dudes standing it's in inevitable. a graveyard. Yeah. And for like five minutes, you're waiting for somebody to pull their gun. I mean, The best scenes in Assault and Precinct 13 are the scenes when the characters are just all together, like discussing what they're going to do next. And when they find out after the first like initial shootout scene with the gang and and the cops, the gang members all roll up and they drop this like sheet covered in blood. And everyone's kind of confused by like what this sheet is. And the one prisoner is like, that's the cholo or something or like I, well, I forget what he what he says yeah, exactly it's a cholo yeah and he and he like describes to them what it is and basically like they will stop at nothing 
until we're dead. Which is in a lot of American Westerns, the way that that sort of translates is with usually with the Apache or with these like legendary warring tribes who when they have some sort of blood vendetta, they will not stop. Yeah, it's and so it feels like such a direct parallel to me, which I think is great because it brings up these issues of like, who does the city belong to? Who does the land belong to? Cholo. You look like somebody spit in your socks. No one said anything about the Cholo. All right, all right. What does it mean? What does it mean? It means they don't care. They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. But it's so cool how... Once they find out that they are now locked into this game of death, there is no choice but to work together. And probably the second most iconic scene of the film is when they decide they need to get out of the police station, get into a car, and drive it to help. And Napoleon Wilson and Wells are doing to decide who has to go out to the car Oh, still, it's so good. I still don't know how this game is played or how, no matter how many times I watch it, I just don't know. I'm, I'm Your head cannon hasn't figured it out no, yet? No, no. It just seems so weird. Do you remember what it's called? Potatoes, right? Potatoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not like rock, paper, scissors, shoot. They just, they're punching while singing a song. And also it's like patty cake. Yeah, yeah. It's this like wonderful schoolyard. It's so unexpected. Which makes it, it's such like a fun little piece. Like it shows this movie has everything. Like even in the thick of it, it still has some like humor that's just so cute. What's wrong? We haven't flipped a coin yet. I'm going to lose. You got a bad attitude, Wells. I always lose. Had bad luck all my life. Now, how do you think I ended up in here? Maybe it'll change. It might, if we don't flip a coin. Let's do something else. What? Potatoes. Okay. One, day, two, day, three, day, four, five, day, six, day, seven, day, more. Eight, day, nine, day, ten, day, eleven. Get my ass and go to heaven. Why owe you spell you? I told you I'd lose. God damn it, we're going to do it again. Hey, hey, there isn't time. Wells has to go out to the car. Napoleon says something like... Uh, uh, when you take off for the border, make sure you make actually sure call. You, yeah, call for help. It's just so cool that like every scene, even when they're like just got done playing patty cake together, goes back to this honor code. And there's something fundamental about it because I think it feels so schoolyard, like you're saying. It's not this sort of specific criminal thing. It's no. just like fundamental the way people relate to each other no matter who they are for sure you, they know the rules or, or at least it's honor among thieves they know like they've been in the shit together and he knows exactly what he's gonna do he's just like make sure you do this one good thing before you abandon all of us and even though he kind of implies like yeah maybe or something like that he kind of like brushes it off you, you know. know he's gonna do yeah. it right unfortunately he does not get the chance which is the beginning of the killers in the backseat for Carpenter. It's this one, then in Halloween, and then, well, he's not in the backseat, but in Escape from New York, when they go up to the World Trade Center, but Snake's glider is cut down, and they go all the way back down, 
Harry Dean Stanton's car doesn't work and Snake Plissken lifts up the hood and the guy's hiding in there with the crossbow. Oh, so Yeah, good. he loves hiding killers in, in a car. I mean, at least he's not trying to hide a baboon in an airplane. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Please listen to our animal tax episode for more information <laughs> on baboons and airplanes. I So... I didn't really think about this before we started talking about it tonight, but I do think there's such an interesting dynamic shift in this movie because it's not just cops or people who work at the police station versus this like faceless, nameless gang. They are forced to integrate with not just like regular criminals who are sort of chilling in an overnight holding cell they're like people who are on death row yeah and i think that makes it such a different movie than it would be if it was just like dudes at a police station versus these criminals attacking them no i think that's like the hook of like the storyline there's the one sheet that's like has the guys like trying to break in to the it's it's great but there's a, a what's like the b sheet where it's all it is is Austin Stoker holding the gun and the tagline is like one cop his enemy a, a gang of a hundred ruthless street killers his only ally a convicted murderer and it's like holy fuck so that sick. sounds so yeah, cool like it just grabs you right so there cool. that's such a it's a great premise premise yeah for sure and the other tagline on the a sheet is also pretty cool oh the, the a, a white, white hot night of hate yeah yeah that's cool that is a pretty great tagline but i feel like that idea of the cop and his worst enemy being forced to unite is just a and i i know i keep saying this but it's such a classic western trope where the thing that i love so much about westerns and I think I said this on a past episode, but this was the first subgenre I really got into after horror because it does this really interesting thing where it's all about morals and values and how people define themselves. And I think it gives characters a chance to go beyond these sort of social mores. Right. Everyone in this universe has done something bad. Everyone has broken some sort of law or some sort of code. And I think it winds up the story, sort of the crux of the story, winds up being about not what you've done in the past, but what you're doing now and how you're helping people and who you really are in this like hour of need. And this movie is so much about that. Like, especially the fucking ending when they walk out of the jail together. Like that's something that would never believably happen in a modern day urban cops versus criminals movie. It's straight out of like an 1890s Western when the lone sheriff really decided what the law was and had flexibility with that. Right. Yeah. Especially when like the one cop that just shows up is trying to handcuff Napoleon Wilson again. Mm-hmm. And Bishop's just like, yo, get the fuck away from him. Like, I'm going to walk out with this dude. And it's just like, yeah, it's fucking honor code. It's cool. I'm curious about one thing. Just one. No, there are other things, but at the moment, this one interests me the most. What's that? Why don't you climb through that vent and take off down the sewer in the other direction? 
Well, there are two things a man should never run from, even if they cost him his life. One is a man who's helpless and can't run with you. What's the other? Come here a minute, Wilson. The very least of our problems is we've run out of time. That's an old story with me. I was born out of time. I love it so much. And it's so, I, I think because before I saw this, I had already seen a number of cop shows. Like I'm a big fan of Kojak and, and things like that. And so the first time I saw this, I remember being really shocked by the ending. Like he would never be able to walk out of there with him. Like he's on death row. He's got to go back to jail to be executed. But the movie's like, nah. I wonder if this whole thing, this story getting out there, would get him off of death row. He might have to do life in prison, but I wonder if it would get him off death row. If Time like, off for good behavior. Exactly. Like, he just, uh, like, fucking saved, like, a cop and another police station worker. Maybe Or maybe he would just get, like, 20 I'm, years. I'm yeah. too ba- cynical. Basically, oh, yeah, yeah. what we're but saying it's not fun to is, think of. you know, we should abolish all prisons... We should abolish do the police. Yes. Oh, no. And at bare minimum, why are we the only country other than like Indonesia and Saudi Arabia that has the death penalty? Yeah, that's <sighs> it's a fucking especially. backwards shit country and you just hate to live in it. You hate to see it. You hate, you to, hate to, to live it. in it. All right, John. Have you seen The Ward? No, I have oh, not. Christ. My last John Carpenter movie is Ghosts of Mars. I've ah. never seen Ghosts of Mars, but I really want to. It's his assault on Precinct 13 in space. That You're sounds really awesome. It. Well, I mean, well, not in, in a quality way. I actually like vampires. I oh, was I just like going to say. Vampires, vampires is fun. Cool. It's fun. Yeah, it's got that like, I like kind vampires. of. It's got a Baldwin. One of the forgotten ones. One of the lesser Baldwins. Yeah. They're all the same person. They're all the lesser Baldwin. <laughs> they are all the lesser Baldwin. But yeah, I saw that when it came out in theaters. And I felt the same way about it that I do about a lot of summer blockbusters. Where it was just like it's dumb and it's not a great movie, but I'm having a lot of fun watching it. And I just, I think I just like weird westerns. Yeah. And John Carpenter obviously does too. It came out when I was 12 and I really wanted to see it. And there was two theaters, the Franks and the Tilton. And the Tilton let kids into R-rated movies. They didn't give a fuck. But Franks didn't. And like, Fuck you, Franks. It's opening day and I get the movie theater to find out what theater it's playing at. And of course it's playing at Frank's and I'm fucking down the whole day. Just devastated. And I come back home and my parents are like, yeah, we know you really wanted to see that new vampire movie. So we're going to take you to see wow. it. And my parents are not down with this shit at all. That's, That's really funny. Cause wow. my dad took me to see it oh, in theaters yeah. and was just mad the whole time. Oh. Cause he was a joyless adult by right. then. But, like, it was so weird that they were just like, yeah, we could tell you were so down this morning that the movie you were psyched for just, like, is playing at the wrong movie theater. So, like, they took – and I saw opening night with, like, a big crowd. How'd they feel about all those boner jokes? My dad loved them, (laughs) actually. My mom's – you know, my mom's okay with everything. And it was just like – it was like the opening night crowd. So it was all, like, the fanboys and everybody was laughing and having a good time. I was like, fuck, yeah. And, and like, even though, like – 
I still like the movie. I can tell it's not the masterpiece I thought it was when I was sure, 12. But, but I'll fun. always have that nostalgia. It's of, definitely like, fun. It. I am not the biggest fan of the back half of John Carpenter's career. For me, that starts at uh, is it Prince of Yeah Prince of Darkness is when you know I what? fall off. Prince of Darkness is magical. It's the last act that falls off for me, but the first two acts rule. What's the one right after that that I don't like? Body bags. No, I've never seen body bags. Um, you don't like in the mouth of madness. I don't like that. I've seen it once years ago. I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it, and I'm ready for a well, rewatch. Because I love Carpenter so much, I will always give those movies the third and fourth and fifth chance. It's better than the Village of the Damned remake. I'll give I didn't see that. I've <sighs> never seen that, but there are a lot of things about In the Mouth of Madness that are really interesting, and as a Lovecraft adaptation, it has a lot going for it. It's not a Lovecraft adaptation. Yes, in, a, in, a, in a way it is. Yeah. yeah. It, for what? For like five. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's like a whole bunch of Lovecraft put together in a blender. But it's also married to like Stephen King. No, no. no the, 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 the author is definitely Lovecraft. What? I yeah. thought his name is like Herman Cain or something. Kane. Sutter Cain. But Herman like, Cain's all, the fucking like, dead Even the politician. stories are like very... Some of them are lifted from Lovecraft. It's, it's and, straight Lovecraft, and the protagonist being forced to go on this like investigative journey, and he's really skeptical, and then he loses his fucking mind. It's yeah. straight Lovecraft, and, and he goes into like a territory that's the Black Church, right? But it's this yeah. town that's like you know how like Lovecraft created Arkham and Miskatonic. You know, yes, it's like this guy ends up in the city where. Well, I mean, I know it's just Providence and Lovecraft, but it's like the magical. It's, version. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm definitely it's, yeah. going to it's, give it. Yeah. Neil gives a good performance because I'm also now I am warming up to '90s films in a way that I was very cold on them in recent years or in all my years it's before that waxy this. Film stock. It that's doesn't look really as good. It's and so it's just, gross. And, yeah, and things kind of they're not they're not good, but they can have a fun nostalgia quality, which is also something I've been coming around to yes. just in the last two or three years. But in the mouth of madness, it's not great, and it has a lot of problems, and it has Carpenter's single worst female character, who's so fucking annoying that she basically ruins the whole movie for me. But you hate women. <laughs> hey, I don't hate Lee. Yeah, I guess so. Also, she's really hot, and this lady isn't. It's. <laughs> I'm. I'm kidding. This is the most bro conversation I've had yeah. with Sam. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, they're all right if they're hot. No, but. <laughs> Did you hear what John Carpenter said about no. the next Halloween film? Oh God, what? He said that it was the most intense horror experience of the year. How he's much just, did they pay him yeah, to say that? John Carpenter said, buckle your fucking seatbelts because Michael Myers is back, He baby. wants to buy the new Call of Duty game. And they're like, oh, yo, yeah, we'll buy yeah, it for you. He can't you. afford the PS5 <laughs> yeah, until he fucking... Yeah, and they're like, they're, they're holding it. Blumhouse is holding it until... What's that quote he has? He's like, he's at his favorite part of his career now where it's like, yeah... Uh, they just want to make movies out of my old movies, so all I do is lift out my hand and a paycheck falls into it. Good for him. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, because he he's not making fuck. any more good movies. Yeah, and it's That's not even the that. Like, in the okay, wait. That. So, can we go back to a question that you asked John, which was, "What did you think of the ward?" Oh yeah, what did you think of the oh, ward? My God. 
So I've never seen it. I assumed it would be awful. So I watched it over like three sittings <laughs> because it was just sign. like it was so bad. But like I just felt almost as if I would be betraying one of my favorite filmmakers if I started a movie of his and just didn't complete it. That's how I did Survival of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't I haven't dipped my toes in oh, it's in the later Romero world. I mean, like I if I was John Carpenter and I wanted to make fucking movies, I would make fucking movies and like who cares if they suck, but I also respect the fact that he realized, "Oh, I don't got it." A lot of it is he got tired out too. I mean, I know after Ghosts of Mars, he said he was just exhausted. I mean, he smokes three packs of cigarettes a day. But also, he got fucked a lot. Like, after, like, Big Trouble in Little China, especially, even after The Thing, like, he had to do, like, some work for, like, he did Christine just to get his name back. Yeah. There's lots of movies that he was working on that they felt through. He was going to remake Creature from the Black Lagoon. But and that happens to directors all the time. Right. But it gets exhausting for a bit. And, you know, I can see it just kind of takes the wind out of your He series. also, so... I know I'm the contrarian here and I'm fine with that role. I definitely prefer European horror directors to Amer- to most American directors, even if they make movies that I love. And one of the things that I don't respect about John Carpenter is that he's a fucking ass. He's like a joyless asshole. And maybe he's wow. that way. That's funny. That's something that I respect about him. Yeah, I don't I don't see him as joyless. I just see him as just he's just a straight shooter. He just seems fucking miserable in all of his interviews and like he hates <laughs> talking to people. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't I don't know because there's times where like I do see him and he is like he, he's never like super upbeat. He's always he's just like his directing style where he's just like matter, matter of fact, fact, cool, blunt. Once you had done Halloween, were you at all tempted to say no more Halloween? Well, I said that for quite a while, and um, I let my uh, producer side come out when they offered me the sequels to Halloween. They offered a nice sum of money, and I also had a lot of hope. Um, for giving new directors a chance to make films as I had been given a chance with low-budget films. And the directors who did two and three, Rick Rosenthal and Tommy Wallace, were, what they were given was a budget. And, okay, here are the rules of the game. Make your movie. Then nobody's going to bother you. It doesn't always work. I thought Halloween 3 was excellent. I really like that film because it's different. It has a real nice feel to it. I think mm-hmm. he's a talented director. On the other hand, I think Halloween 2 is, is an abomination and a horrible movie. My favorite, like, joyful John Carpenter moment is the commentary for The Thing. I don't know if it's on the most recent Blu-ray release, but it's him and Kurt Russell. And it's it's clear. It's so good. And most of it is great. And they talk about the movie. But there are these times where it's, like, obvious that they haven't seen each other in a while. And they go off on these tangents like, how's your wife? How's your kids? What's going on in your life? And you can tell that there's somebody in the studio. Some Poindexter in the background. Who's like waving, like some producer. Hey, guys. Yeah, who's like like waving into the recording booth, like get back to the movie. And they're like, oh, oh. So it's like they forget that they're recording a commentary. It's, It's so delightful. And... I think that's when he sounds his warmest and most likable is when he's talking to Kurt Russell. The Big Trouble in Little China commentary is the same exact thing. That's also great. They break off and start talking about their kids for like 20 minutes. It's wonderful. Yeah, what a great team. This 
Assault and Precinct 13 to get back on. Actually, you know what? Before we, we, know, we don't know what your favorite John Carpenter yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. So I honestly, I've said for years that it is Assault and Precinct 13 because that's the one that I go back to the most. I, I have grown really, really fond of the original Halloween in the last like five years. I mean, I've always liked it. It was one of my first horror movies and horror franchises that I watched when I was a little kid because for some reason I wasn't allowed to watch uh, like the Friday the 13th or the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Right. And I really wanted to watch the Nightmare on Elm Street series. But like my parents let me rent Halloween because I guess that one is more tame than I mean I don't know why in a way it is I don't, yeah in a way yeah. there I are no, less sex jokes for some reason that series they allowed me to watch like before I was like 12 like when I was like a little kid nobody in Halloween says welcome to prime time bitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean Dr. Loomis gets close to saying it but he does <laughs> and he like abuses some children yeah. in part oh. four <laughs> I, no I love the 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 first one when the kids are like daring themselves to go in Michael Myers' house and, and Don Pleasant is like, oh. hey, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. <laughs> and the way Donald Pleasant <laughs> pronounces ass, it's like he, he can't quite get the American accent yeah. because you can tell that he's sort of laughing. <laughs> uh, I love Halloween. Yeah, I, I hate to say that, that Halloween, Halloween is my, it's my favorite John Carpenter I film. remember you That's were crazy. on that psycho fucking weirdo group that thinks three is the best one that's me three is the best of the sequels yes that's i like three better than the first halloween but i remember when we went to see it on halloween night they were playing it at tilton and we went to and i that was the night it finally turned with you where yeah that's the yeah i always really liked it but i never quite understood why it was bumped up to be like fucking the Casablanca. I of don't understand it films. either. Sam, I I hope it will, to God it will. one day that you watch it. So and it okay, it's a really horror do. movie, but it has the mechanics of a thriller, which makes the slice and dice stuff that's usually kind of forgettable in like Friday the Thirteenth Part like six or whatever stand out. It's like well crafted. So I like it, but I don't love it, and I never have. It's best holiday movie ever. No, it is Black <laughs> Christmas is the best slasher and the best I holiday movie. I love Black Christmas so much. It's, it's a better slasher than Halloween, and it came first. H- Halloween has an ambiance to it that is just. Halloween has some annoying characters. You just don't like Halloween, the holiday. Oh, <gasps> how dare you! I had thirty-one pumpkins in here last year, if you remember correctly, and now there's a pumpkin patch growing in my backyard where there's not even any soil. I love the characters. I love the girls. They're like these AIP characters, like you know, like the stewardesses or something. But like the PJ high Souls, yeah. is wonderful. They're but all great. I, so I feel really bad saying this, and I feel like if I admit this publicly on a podcast, someone's gonna come firebomb yeah. my house. Nobody's listening to this shit. Yeah, Go on, fire away. No one's made it to this part of the episode. So I like Jamie Lee Curtis as an actress, but I find Laurie to be super annoying. I just don't like her. She has a stick up her ass. Like, I wish PJ Souls was the main character. The reason I prefer Halloween 3, and I don't think from a technical standpoint, I don't think it's a better film. It's just so much more fun, and I think it nails the spirit of Halloween 
equally as well. I kind of wish Halloween 3 was the second one. So they got that anthology thing yeah, from the me get-go. Too. And then it probably would have taken if, off. If we had lived in the timeline oh where Halloween God, 3 was a hit, the and then Halloween 4 was just like a totally different wacko psycho so fucking awesome. movie, That's and it. we don't just get Michael Myers every over fucking year for the rest over, of our yes. life, this if, fucking curse that we have to live with. It's if, like we're fucking locked in with this death curse with Street Thunder, where Michael Myers has to show up every two fucking years I'm telling you theater. if I find like the multiverse thing that takes me to like the universe where that happened you'll never see me again okay I'm we'll take us with you Ugh, yeah quantum leap me there each seriously. one having like a killer new John Carpenter soundtrack too like oh it would be so awesome oh my god we, can we have also dream. gotten pretty far away yeah, from it, Assault on Precinct 13. I, like I just want to say, like, th- John, this movie isn't just, like, my favorite John Carpenter movie. This is, like, in my top ten favorite movie. It's, like, my favorite type of movie where it's a raw 70s exploitation movie made by somebody that was emerging that clearly had talent. You know, it's, it's like Evil Dead or, like, Night of the Living Dead where it's, like, this guy clearly has chops and he's making, like, you know something that's like edgy and weird and crazy it's teeth. a perfect calling card yeah it's also crazy to think that he's using all these western tropes and we talked about how it borrows a lot from rio bravo which you know he himself has admitted but it feels so distinctive and like it's a john carpenter yeah, film. yeah absolutely and it's it, john carpenter's assault in precinct 13 but i feel like to have your first like full-fledged feature feel like it's your movie is a real accomplishment and it's rare and and especially when like you can see all the influences is pulling from from night of the living dead to howard hawks and still he just makes everything his own like he's like yeah i know you know all these ingredients but for some reason like this is a different thing yeah like the Street Thunder at the end of Assault and Precinct 13, we are running out of steam and slowing down fast. But we left that phone company worker up in the bird's nest to drip blood all oh over. Oh my god, I forgot Sick. about that fucking guy. I love that scene. You gotta fucking have some dead guy up high in a movie bleeding on the fucking people yeah. down below. Alright, what do you think? I'm, I feel like I got it all out. I love this movie. As long as it's out there, everybody knows how much I love it. I'm, 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 I'm good. Yep, John, you're on record. Sick. Bye. Is that a Otis reference? Bye. Yeah, that's how I've gone <laughs> yeah. up the end of everyone.